Welcome to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis, Director of the Centre. This week, we'll be diving deep into facial recognition technology with former Human Rights Commissioner Ed Santo and Choice campaigner Kate Bauer. But first, our wrap of the latest news with Digital Rights Watch campaigner Samantha Floriani, Centre for Digital Wellbeing co-founder Carla Wilshire and Guardian Australia Managing Director Dan Stinton. The first up, cab off the rank today is Dan. Um, Dan, you've been looking at some of the um, commentary around a German prosecution of Apple over its... um, data transparency um, and also the rules that it's putting on its um, on people that use its platform. Now, I think for a lot of us, Apple have kind of been seen as more the good guys in terms of data surveillance. They're the ones that say we don't track you. Um, they're the ones that seem to have a business around selling us a product rather than giving us something for free and then selling our data. So what's the deal? Is this prosecution a sign that there probably is I'm going to I don't, I don't want to talk about the core of Apple but there's more to what's going on at Apple than meets the eye um, or how do we explain this prosecution yeah thanks Peter um, where do we start so I've, I've wanted to talk about Apple actually for a few months because I think they've got a bit of a free pass uh, with regards to their reputation for privacy that they perhaps don't deserve now to be clear I think they are about a million times better than Google or Facebook uh, with the tracking that they do. The problem is that that's still quite bad. So I'll, um, I'll talk you through the reasons why, if you like. So just to, to bring, um, bring everyone up to speed. So yeah, as you, as you touched on, Pete, so, so last week, the German Federal Cartel Office, who have a name that I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce, but anyway, that, that, that's um, their competition regulator, announced that it was initiating a proceeding against Apple to review under their competition law its tracking rules uh, regarding the app tracking transparency or ATT framework. Um, And in particular, um, Apple's rules have raised the initial suspicion of self-preferencing to the impediment of other companies. So as a reminder, Apple introduced ATT uh, last year, I think it was as part of iOS 14.5. And that was when those messages started appearing on your iPhone, asking you whether you wanted um, or asking app not to track. And I think uh, the latest results I've seen on that is that about 90% of people said no um, when asked, uh, perhaps understandably, whether or not they wanted an app to track them across, uh, across the internet. And that was also the time that Apple started running those very picky ad campaigns, um, you know, showcasing their privacy credentials um, under the sort of the slogan of privacy, that's iPhone. Now, at the time, this was welcomed by most privacy advocates, including me, I should say, um, as a step that made it much harder for companies like Facebook, for example, to follow you around the internet, tracking everything that you were doing and everything that you were buying. And it did result in Facebook losing about $10 billion worth of ad revenue a year because it became their advertising tracking capability became much worse. And therefore, the amount of money they were making from that uh, went down really substantially. The problem, though, is that Apple has started to benefit massively from this change in policy with their own Apple search ads, which has gone from being a fairly nascent business to to a rapidly growing one, for as best as we can tell. Apple don't break out the figures for this uh, independently, so it's hard to know for certain, but it does seem like, uh, based on a few um, reports around the world, it does seem like this area of their business is growing really rapidly. And they've they've done this by taking a very broad view of what they regard as first-party data. So... 
Look, for the uninitiated, first-party data is, is the data that companies collect when you use the services. So if you take The Guardian, for example, where I work, we will track, for example, what articles you read and we'll use that to serve up personalised content or personalised advertising. But what ATT did when Apple introduced it is it made it much more difficult for us uh, to share data with third parties. Now, to be clear, The Guardian never did this, but lots of other companies would then share this data with, with other third parties to see whether or not it resulted in a transaction. So Facebook, for example, would serve you a personalised ad and then they'd follow you around the internet and see whether that resulted in a purchase or an app download. That's become much more or impossible to do really for, the, for those users that rejected under, under the ATT framework. Apple, however, what's important to, to note is that they regard almost everything that you do on the iPhone as their first party data. Uh, which they can use for their own target of that business. So, so this includes, there's just a few examples, the content that you read in Apple News, the music that you listen to in Apple Music, the shows you watch on Apple TV, your location data, and critically, the transactions that you make using Apple Pay, which they force every app in the App Store to use. So this massively increases the capabilities of their sort of nascent but fast-growing ad businesses I mentioned. And what's worse is that it's not just creepy, but it's also anti-competitive because unless you happen to own uh, a mobile operating system and there's only two, there's iOS and Android, there's no way, no one else in the world that's able to do this. So I think the German cartel office has a point and, and I'm interested to see whether or not they, uh, they have any success with this. But uh, what does everyone else think? I'll go to you first, Sam. Do we, do we care that our phone is collecting all this data if it's just within the one ecosystem or where, where are your alarm bells here? feel like my alarm bells are just constantly ringing. Yeah. It's really loud in this brain. Um, I actually echo quite a lot of what um, Dan has said here. Um, I also, you know, compared to a lot of other companies, Apple is maybe not the worst, but that doesn't mean that we should give them a free pass. And I think what's really frustrating is that they like to present themselves as this really privacy enhancing company, but they still, you know, they still uh, reap the benefits of, of, of collecting huge amounts of our information, of being super privacy invasive and, and bolstering their, um, their own ad company, as, as Dan said. So I feel like this is tricky, right? Because yeah, maybe it is anti-competitive, but what's the competition here? Is the competition a race to the bottom in surveillance capitalism? Like I don't necessarily want companies to be particularly competitive when it comes to being invasive of our of our privacy if, if that makes sense so I this it feels like a bad 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 either way um, and Apple is not innocent when it comes to being anti-competitive in other ways as well you know they have a huge monopoly on the app store they've been criticized of um, censoring LGBTQ apps in particular around the world um, and they've also been uh, called out for being anti-competitive when it comes to things like the right to repair so It'll be interesting to see how this one plays out. Yeah, Carla, um, I don't know if you're an Apple user, but um, does this affect the social licence as far as you're concerned? No, look, I think it does, and I think it does particularly because of Apple's branding around this. Um, you know, I was in the cinemas only last night with my husband and an Apple ad came on saying Apple's wonderful on privacy and we're protecting you um, and even has a little symbol where the... Was that after you'd ignored the turn your phone off as you went into the cinema? <laughs> yeah, so it was kind of like one of those sort of, you know, be conscious of your phone, but by the way, we're great on privacy. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think they have really tried to target particularly a younger and more conscious market on this. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I think as much as anything, there's a degree of false advertising here around, 
as well around sort of, you know, what sort of brand are they trying to build um, in a surveillance capitalist market, as, as Sam points out. You know, if, if that is what they're running on, then to some extent, I think there is an onus to follow through in terms of their own capabilities and their own systems and processes as well. Yeah, what strikes me is even to get to the point that we understand Apple's doing the wrong thing, you've almost got to be an expert in, in privacy law to actually follow all the strains down. And you did a great job at trying to explain it, Dan. I reckon I understand about half of what you were talking about, but we have put the link in the chat. Ed, is there a problem here just in terms of general privacy that you've almost got to be an expert even to exercise your rights to privacy? Yeah, yeah, there is a big problem there. So privacy, you know, there's a key that unlocks privacy, which is consent. So if a company can say, oh, look, you you said that this is okay, um, then they can do all kinds of things that, um, that, that would otherwise be a breach of your privacy. But if you're not really consenting in any kind of meaningful way, if you're if you're asked to sort of read screeds and screeds of legalese um, in order to access some service that you really, really want, then most people, a vast majority of people, just click through because they need to access the service. Um, and so that's that's quite that's quite significant. Um, but I also think there's a really big bigger phenomenon at play here, which is a really interesting one. Um, so um, you sometimes see this with big tech companies where they go, well, you know what? Look at all the wonderful things we're doing, and and often they really are quite wonderful. There are there are amazing things you can do with new technology, um, and then they sort of say it's a bit like having a balanced investment portfolio. So if there's all of these sort of good human rightsy things, then surely we should be able to get away with a few human rights violations on the side, and that that just ain't how it works, right? That that legally is definitely not how it works, but morally as well, like that is completely batty. And I think we really need to push back on that very, very firmly. Speaking of moral borderlines, Sam, you've um, you've rolled up um, a, a piece from IT News about um, an investigation into Australia's border force conducted 41,000 warrantless but legal searches of our electronic devices at the country's borders between 2017 and 2021. What's going on and do we expect more from the incoming Labor government? Can I just say what a nice little smooth transition that was? Um, well done. <laughs> yeah, so this issue is not particularly new. It is. It comes up in the news every now and then, um, usually on the back of a, an anecdote from a traveller who has gone through an awful experience um, with the Australian Border Force when it comes to um, them searching their devices. But what is new about this is that uh, IT News did do an investigation where they got a bunch of FOI documents um, which should have sort of gave us more of a complete picture, not a fully complete picture because transparency is obviously a big issue here, um, but more of a complete picture about the extent to which these border um, device searches are happening. So essentially the issue is, is that when you are at the border, uh, border force officers can uh, can get you to hand over your phone and they can uh, <laughs> compel you to give your passcode. They can't legally require you to give your passcode, but as you can imagine, if you're you know you're tired, you've just got off the plane, you're stupid stressed, there's somebody in a uniform in front of you who seems like you know they're an authority figure, and so when put in that position, of course, most people are going to hand over their passcode, believe either believing that it's a legal requirement or just out of kind of fear or, or feeling pressured to. And so what have a you lot got of to hide? 
example i mean yeah so they i think they do rely on that kind of rhetoric to get people to hand over and if you don't hand over your passcode they can take your device for up to 14 days to go and take it away and investigate it so knowing that as well you'd be like oh well screw it here's my passcode i just want to go home like let's get it done and so that is quite an abuse of power for one thing they're not required to tell people their 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 right to say no um and so that already like even as we were talking about before as as ed raised about you know issues of consent you can't you can't be meaningfully consenting to any of this if you don't know what you're dealing with um and then there's the issue of a huge invasion of privacy. You know, this is kind of based on the idea that under the Customs Act, you can um, they can search your luggage, right, to, to make sure you're not bringing in any, any prohibited items. But our phones and our laptops and our devices are way more personal mm. than our luggage. Like, it's not the same as your dirty underwear or your travel souvenirs. Like, we store all kinds of stuff on our phones, as this audience would um, be well aware of. So it's way more invasive. And there are also just no protections when it comes to um, people like lawyers or um, journalists who also have an obligation for confidentiality for their sources and their clients. So it's a, it's a really big problem. Where Digital Rights Watch is coming from is we just don't believe you should have to be giving up your right to privacy on the border. Border force needs to be getting warrants because mm. the key issue here is that they, that they can do it pretty much on a whim if they if they want mm. to. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're campaigning at the moment to um, um, get we'll put the a link government. To, we'll put a link to the petition in the chat. Yeah. Good on you. Um, so, Ed, is this a case of just the law not catching up with, like, I think Sam makes the point, we, we all accept that they're going to go through our dirty, dirty laundry and our toiletries if we're crossing a border. Do, is our phone just being regarded as our underpants? Well, yeah, and I, and I think it's really worrying. I mean, I think there, there are kind of two issues here. The first is that this is happening in the shadow of the law. Um, so uh, perhaps with the kind of the, the, the grey area um, that Border Force can sometimes operate within where they sort of say, oh, look, you know, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. Um, if you want to get out of here after you've been on a 24-hour flight or whatever, um, you know, we can do this really quickly, just miss your passcode. Um, that, that's, that's, that should be completely unacceptable. Um, it's, I think, contrary to... Um, at the very least, the kind of code of conduct that uh, the public service um, operates. Um, and I think that, you know, when you're talking about intrusive powers, um, like accessing people's personal information, um, then the, you actually need a very, very clear legal authority to do that. Um, and this is clearly, you know, outside of um, that realm. Um, but again, there's, there's a bigger issue here. Well, why does this matter? Um, and I do think we should probably just take a step back and think a little bit about what this means in terms of a violation of privacy. I was rereading um, recently Milan Kundera, um, who wrote, you know, The Unbearable Lightness of Being and was writing a lot during the Cold War. And, now you're I mean, just places showing like off. Czech... nah, I wasn't reading it in the original Czech or anything. Right? <laughs> um, but, you know, in that period, right, like, Often like one in nine people, I think, in the community were um, were spying, <laughs> were literally spying for the state. And Secundera was talking about some of his books on this, and, and he was saying, you know, what, what really matters here is that when you're having private conversations with people, 
um, you, you are able to be your most unguarded self. Um, you can float heretical ideas. You can say crazy, bawdy things. And you're saying it to someone that you choose to say it to, your friend or your family member or something. Now, if you take any of that and put it out of context, it could easily be taken to mean something very different from how you intended to come across. Um, and that's part of the problem here. So even if Border Force feels like it does have some very, very good reason to, to access these personal things that you, you say on your, on your phone or you have recorded on your phone, that could easily get the wrong impression. Uh, and so, um, so that's that's why this this stuff is actually quite high state. Dan Guardian does a lot of work on the expanding power of the state, but um, where does this one lead your thinking? Uh, I think this is just another symptom of digital privacy being treated very differently to privacy in the real world. I mean, I think the the fact that this is even possible, if you if you take the equivalent of what we well, if you, if you look at what we what we do on our phones now. And you can, and you think about the information that's stored on there. It would be the equivalent of giving border force officers the right to enter your phone and rifle through all of your per- not not just your luggage, by the way, but but rifle through your entire phone and what you've purchased and what media you're consuming and everything else. And we would never accept that, right? Like society would say that is just a ridiculous. Uh, well, at least in Australia, we wouldn't accept that. But yet we allow our border force officers to do this for people's phones. Uh, for no good reason, really, just because I think we privacy regulations haven't caught up to to the digital age, and that's that's what this shows. I just make one other point, if I could. I mean, I think Sam said that uh, there was the threat of taking the phone off these individuals for fourteen days. I don't know about you, but that scares the hell out of me. As much as I pretend I'm not addicted to my phone, I'm I'm deeply addicted to it. But in all seriousness, how do you run your life? How do you run a modern life now without a without your phone for for two weeks? I mean, it would be pretty crippling, right? Given how much we have we have come to rely on these things now, so. I mean, the fact that that is a, a threat that they are able to exercise, I think, demonstrates that there really isn't a choice for these people uh, if they don't to, to hand over their their, their password and uh, and the like. I think it's there's there's no other way around it. So, anyway, I just think the law's got to catch up. Privacy re- privacy reform has to happen in Australia, and it has to include law enforcement. And it's almost digital detention, isn't it? You know, you, you're being put in social isolation for 14 days. So, you know, <laughs> this is the thing. I mean, I I went to a talk once with uh, with someone, and he made the point of of he was saying how addicted to our phones we all are. And we all sort of nodded and sort of like nodded along, like, yes, that's true, but never really thought about it. But then he went up and he grabbed the phone that was in my hand and took it off me and just put it up on, on the lectern as he was speaking. It was the most uncomfortable 45 minutes I've had uh, all year. It was just unbearable. I mean, you think about not not having your phone for yeah. two for two weeks. I wasn't even what he was going to look at. It was just that you couldn't scroll Twitter and that was really freaking Exactly, out, right? exactly. Yeah. What if I got bored for a second? Imagine that. Yeah. In addition to obviously feeling, you know, completely um, insecure without our devices for 14 days, there are also like really serious cybersecurity risks that come with this. We don't have complete visibility over the um, the vendors that that they use, that Border Force uses. We do know that they use Celebrite amongst others. Celebrite is an Israeli uh, intelligence company. It's, it's spyware, essentially, and it has a terrible international human rights track record. Celebrite enables um, people to bypass encryption in some cases, bypass passwords, um, to be able to extract and copy all kinds of data. And cybersecurity experts, when talking about this in particular, have said, you know, if they take your device away from you for a period of time, it could be permanently compromised. Like there's just, it's, it's really hard mm. to tell exactly what they do with it. And so we're also opening up people to be vulnerable to all kinds of other digital security issues as well. 
all the more reason for everyone to sign the digital watch petition rights watch petition which yes, please. back into the chat <laughs> as we go to Carla for her contribution, which I know is gonna get us all thinking about our favorite tech movie, um, which is about the development in Alexa that you can now get Alexa to talk to you in any voice you choose. Yeah, so Alexa this week has announced that after listening to less than one minute of one person's audio, at some point in the future, we'll uh, launch a version of Alexa where it can copy that voice. So, for instance, if you if you are able to feed it one minute of um, Nana leaving you a birthday message from your 14th birthday, then, you know, Nana is forever in Alexa. Um, and I think this, this raises some really interesting and thorny issues, um, not least of which um, I think, you know, that there's a lot of scope around deep fakes and the increase of deep fakes that, that come from this. Um, and so that's one, one big issue. But it sort of opens up this really interesting space as well, um, which I think we need to really turn our attention to and think about, which is what is our engagement with technology and what's our emotional engagement with technology and where does... Where does a sense of, you know, a recording which might bring back a memory of a real event cross over into something where we are replicating a new memory or creating a new memory based on an understanding of, you know, what someone's voice was, what the characteristics of their speech were, was. And, you know, Alexa comes on top of other forms of AI technology and I'm really listening to what, um, uh, excited about what Ed might say on this as well. You know, there, there was this sort of development of all sorts of bot technology, like I think one of them's called Replica, uh, which was created by someone after uh, one of their um, closest friends died and they fed in all of the text messages and, you know, voice messages and exchanges and emails that they'd ever had with this person and the AI was able to develop um, a form of basically an understanding of how they might respond. Um, so it was able to mimic their kind of turns of phrase and, and their kinds of responses to things to recreate, you know, a chatbot version of the person which, you know, this friend then became very attached to. So, you know, I think this really opens up this notion of, you know, what is our emotional engagement with technology, you know, and are we kind of creeping more and more into the unreal? It sort of lines up with a story from about a week ago about um, Google's Lambda AI system with claims that some engineers believe that it's actually become a sentient being, Ed. Yeah. It's it's not. <laughs> Let's just get that out. Of <laughs> Spoiler alert. Okay, so here's here's an analogy. Tell me if it works. Imagine you're a farmer, and you make a scarecrow to scare away the the birds from your field, um, and then you're sitting on your porch, a couple hundred meters away from the scarecrow. You go, I think it just moved. I think it just moved. Right. You know that it's full of straw. But you can, with the trick of the light, maybe with a few kind of hopeful um, ways of thinking, kind of convince yourself that that maybe the the scarecrow has come to life. Um, it it hasn't. It absolutely hasn't. Not on this earth, right? And 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 the, and the same is almost certainly true of Google's Lambda chatbot. So you had an engineer who'd been working on this for years, um, trying to get it to sound more and more realistic, and he won, right? Like he won. It was it was sounding really realistic. Um, but then he made the kind of magical leap 
that not only was it realistic, it was actually real. And it was it was conversing with him um, in a way that almost certainly it wasn't. And I say almost certainly because I guess in theory, anything is possible. So I'm not going to completely rule out, you know, anything. Um, but but we basically can rule it out. And, and that's the thing about how natural language processing, which is at the heart of this technology works, is you you train it with all of this data to make it sound realistic. And then when it when it works, um, you should just accept it sounds realistic. You shouldn't then make this this leap to say, oh well no, actually it's it's conscious. Sam, you've been sharing some of your war stories about um, interactions with um, Google Home in um, the Fairfax media over recent weeks. Do you want to share it with the crowd? I have been getting nice and personal with the media recently. Um, so I wrote, I had a personal experience. I went on a date with somebody and I ended up going home with them and things got heated. It was a very intimate context. And then they, and then they were like, Hey Google and started talk to, talking to Google. Um, now for me as a digital rights um, advocate and privacy advocate who had just spent majority of the date like nerding out about that because I'm a really good time on a date obviously to then to then be faced with that in a very intimate context I was just like quite taken aback and so it really got me thinking about like the social etiquette around how we um, integrate these technologies into our lives how we navigate consent and privacy in not just in intimate settings but you know just inviting anyone into your house and you've got these technologies happening um, you know what the implications are and what the responsibility is to tell somebody that you have those devices running and then I think if we circle back to the like initial topic um, uh, that Carla raised, as soon as you add in something like the ability to to mimic somebody's a, a, a real person's voice, these questions become all the more hairy. I think. Yeah, and there's toys, and then the yeah. My son's just submitted his year ten English essay in Eric Cartman's voice, and he thought that was terrific, and took three times longer than it needed to. So there is a toy, but when the technology and focus create false identities, what, what I wonder is all this effort going to where is the utility in the technology? Like where is the bit of it that is actually useful? I don't know. You've thought that through, Dan, and you I don't I don't know. I just talking to a machine. Apart from, you know, saying, yeah, look, it's funny, it sounds like some, someone from a TV show or something you shout at when the technology doesn't work. I don't know what it's adding to, to have these features. Oh, well, I guess there's a million applications for it. But, I mean, there's, there's probably two points I'll just make on this before we move on to the next one is, so just on that Lambda, I was going to bring up the Lambda um, example as well. And, and Ed, you made the point that, this engineer has made the leap that this thing is conscious incorrectly, according to almost everybody. Just imagine though, if that was in his grandma's voice and he was having a dialogue with it. But my, my sense is even more people will be convinced this stuff is real when it's not, or this stuff is conscious when it's this AI is conscious when it's not. So I think that's the where this goes, right? Is you end up going not just having a conversation which seems real, but a conversation which sounds and feels real. So more people will be duped into thinking that the AI is alive and all the implications that come from that. And then one last point on it, just to, to bring it back to the original, the original application, just imagine how much fun scammers are going to be able to have with this technology, right? I mean, I, I'm getting a text message almost every day now asking me to um, uh, you know, give me my delivery details or my bank account details or whatever else. And you can usually, like, well, so far 100% of the time, but um, mm. I know a lot of people get caught by this, right? Because they're getting more and more sophisticated with it. Imagine if you get a voicemail from 
your mum or your your partner saying, "Hey, I need some uh, I'm, I need some money for X, Y, and Z. Can you just deposit some into this?" A lot lot more people are going to be caught out by that than are now. So I think where this is going is pretty scary. I'm not sure there's anything we can do to stop it, but it's um it's a pretty scary development in my view. Um, so I'm not sure. I see lots of downsides, not a huge amount of upside other than a, a, a quirky chat. So who knows? Mm-hmm. And thanks, Dean, for your comments in the chat. And I think you are making a good point. The extent to which this is just pure marketing and it isn't either, you know, anything close to intelligent in your words, which I think reinforces Ed's original point. On that note, I feel like we've built the news, um, you know, a pretty good hand today. Um, let's let's go into the, our deep dive on facial recognition technology. And I do want to give kudos to Choice for putting the report out into the public domain that Ed and myself and I suspect Sam and anyone else has been surfing over the last couple of weeks. And what's great when we start building an ecosystem of people that think about these issues is that one organisation's good work can spark some meaningful debate. And I'll bring Kate up in a sec just to talk a bit about that report. I guess the context for me is that why I think this report really took off was because it was talking really to the experience of individual consumers and shoppers. So it was a consumer story, but there'd been all this amazing policy work that had been being done over the last two or three years by Ed and his team at the Human Rights Commission. So I think if it had just been another consumer story, it would have stopped. But it is also really true, and Ed can attest to this, that it was a real struggle to get people interested in the policy. So before we go into that policy bit, Kate, I don't know if you just want to talk a little bit about the um, the work that Choice did and why you chose this particular issue to dive into but um welcome i'm hoping that you've Hi. been able to turn your mic yes. on and yep. join us G'day. i am here thank you yeah i mean that's a good um introduction actually peter because obviously we're a consumer organization so we're always looking at it from the consumer's perspective um but one of the things we've been thinking about um, my colleague amy and i uh, we started the consumer data team here at choice about a year ago um is How can we bring light to these important discussions around policy uh, to do with facial recognition, to do with consumer data issues generally, digital rights, um, et cetera, in a way that connects with the everyday Australian experience? And that was one of the reasons why we chose to look at retailers. Um, Obviously, as you mentioned, there's been a lot of discussion around the use of facial recognition technology by governments and with the uh, associated human rights issues and the the citizenry issues, um, which are certainly very important. But I think that's kind of meant we've also kind of taken our eyes off what some of these commercial businesses are also able to do um, with this technology. Um, And Kmart Bunnings, um, and even the good guys to a certain extent are stores that people go to all of the time. Um, and that was kind of interesting to us when that came up in the investigation. It was actually a tip off from a choice member initially that tipped us off to this, uh, to look at this was someone who was shopping at Kmart and said, hey, I think they're using facial recognition, but I didn't really know what was going on there. So basically it was hiding in plain sight. All we did was look at 25 top retailers and we could have looked at 50 or 100. Um, We stopped at 25. Um, We looked at their privacy policies. We also emailed them and said, hey, are you using facial recognition technology? We also asked about, um, you know, other ways of describing similar technology like object detection and image recognition. 
Um, and then that was how we found out they came out in the Bunnings um, and the good guys very recently, it seems for the good guys, they only updated their privacy policy in April um, are, are using facial recognition technology in their stores. Mm. I guess one of the difficulties in jumping in on the back of it was we've got this big body of evidence and then there's drawing a link between what and what is actually being done by the retailers. And I know that um, there was a lot of interest in, um, well, what can we do about it? And, you know, the solution is, as we said, sitting on the Attorney General's desk, which is put a moratorium on this stuff until we get some guardrails in place. What I couldn't work out, and just I'll go back to you, Kate, before I go to Ed, what I didn't quite get out of the report was whether we think the technology is merely being used to sort of flag customers that are being suspected of shoplifting or whether it was part of a bigger play just to normalise this and create, you know, an ongoing secondary market, which is, you know, totally not illegal in any way at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point. So they retailers weren't hugely forthcoming in what they wanted to tell us, which I think is part of the problem is the lack of transparency um, on this issue that there isn't a kind of mandated requirement for them to tell their customers exactly what they're doing and for what reasons. So the reasons that they gave were loss prevention and security. Um, Bunnings was the only one who gave us uh, comment on the record um, and since the story broke obviously every uh, media outlet in the country has contacted them and came out and the good guys have been more forthcoming since then um, but I think that's part of the problem is that there isn't a requirement for them to tell us exactly what they're doing and then that leaves the door open for other types of uses. Um, you know Woolworths is an interesting example who are not using facial recognition technology but are using many different types of smart cameras and image recognition and object detection in their stores. They're about to trial body cameras on their staff members. Um, and they do have various things like the, what they call pick list assist, where they will can see if you're trying to put your avocados through as apples um, in the self-serve checkout. So I definitely think the possibility of scope creep mm. is there. So, so they, they basically get rid of humans at the cashiers. They get us to be our own cashier and then they use technology to make sure we're being good cashiers. Excellent. Yeah, that's pretty much it. You become your own security guard, your own cashier, pretty much all in one. Awesome. Ed, does any of this surprise you? And to what extent do you think this is vendor-driven and a problem looking for a solution? I'm not completely surprised, uh, but I am very grateful um, and would applaud Choice, Kate and the team for doing that hard legwork in kind of shining a light on what's, what's happening. Um, there's definitely some technology solutionism here where you know vendors are saying look there's this fantastic piece of tech that's going to save you heaps of money in um kind of shoplifting that, that no longer happens all of that sort of stuff um some of that's pretty questionable but but ultimately the, the bigger question is are there effective legal protections to stop people from being harmed to have you know particularly in terms of their privacy but also some other really fundamental rights um, does the system actually work the way it's claimed to work? And often it doesn't. Um, and, uh, you know, to, to what extent are, are companies um, and indeed government agencies um, being really upfront with the community about how this sort of tech is being used? So you did a lot of thinking on this. I don't know if you want to give people a brief recall on your um, report to the Human Rights Commission. And then it ended up in the big round filing cabinet in the minister's office, didn't it? So just... How was that experience and then how, what have you been doing since you, um, you left the Human Rights Commission? I mean, the experience of working with the coalition government 
over five years as human rights commissioner. It was great. <laughs> no, it, it certainly had its moments. Um, it's true uh, that um, the uh, that there were there were certainly quite a lot of things that I said to the government that um, they kind of listened to uh, courteously, um, but didn't act on in most things. Uh, but I'm I'm actually really hopeful because on this issue there was no actually objection from the previous government and certainly the noises that the current government um, is making are really positive on this. And that, that that's essentially boils down to something really simple. And that is that, of course, we're going to continue to use new technology. You know, the, the, the solution cannot be to throw out all the computers and return to an advocate. That's, that's not on the table. But, but what is on the table is whether we make sure that the way in which we use technology and if the way in which we regulate um, is one that upholds people's basic human rights. So the technology has to be fair, it has to be accurate, and it has to be accountable. And if you get those three principles right, if you make sure that that is the way in which our law operates, if you make sure that the law is enforced really rigorously to achieve that outcome, then actually we can have uh, quite an exciting you know, future, one, one that you know, where te tech actually gives us what we want and need, not, not what we fear. Um, and so that's, you know, yes, you, if you want to read the 250-page version of that, that's in a report, um, which I've kind of brought back to the top of um, a whole bunch of ministers' uh, uh, kind of to-do lists um, since, um, since the change of government. Um, but, but, but really, it does boil down to that. Sorry to jump in. Ed, you were calling, though, for a, for a moratorium on this, right, on facial recognition, but, but on the basis that it just, it's impossible to meet the, that criteria at the moment, right? I mean, can, can you just expand on that? Like, why, why do you, I mean, yeah. I, I, I agree, but give me, your, give me your take on it. So um, what we said is a little bit more complicated, but it, but, it, but essentially boils down to that there are some uses of facial recognition, like, you know, using facial recognition to unlock your phone is not particularly high risk. Existing laws, okay with that. There's a whole bunch of facial recognition. As soon as you use it to make a significant decision, for example, if the police are using it to identify a criminal suspect, that's where all of the red lights should be flashing, right? And at the moment, um, our law says nothing really about that. There's no dedicated legal protection against police misusing facial recognition or overusing facial recognition. And that's where we were really saying, we need a moratorium to press pause. Um, and then what we need to do is have a really clear sense as to where the red line should be. Because some of this stuff should be completely outlawed. There's just no excuse for it. And there's some stuff in the middle that is not, you know, unlocking a smartphone, it may be a higher risk than that, but if you put in place some additional protections, you, you can get the benefit of the technology while adequately protecting people's basic human rights. It's also just a massive invasion of privacy though, right? I mean, this is, this is like cookies on steroids to me. I mean, at least with cookies at the yeah. moment, you can clear your case and get rid of them. You can't, well, I guess you could hide your face by, by wearing a mask the whole time but it, it it's it, you can't like you take your face with you everywhere you go right so yeah, i just regard to, yeah. this is if it's become, become the norm that all of these private companies can just track every single individual that works into their store and form a profile of them i mean that just yeah. feels like a, an even worse version of the internet that we have now i i, I mean isn't yeah. privacy a big consideration on this as well it should be it should be so there's there's kind of <laughs> like an arms race that we as citizens will always lose, right? Like this guy came up to me, I remember once a couple of years ago um, at a public forum and said, hey, you know what? I've got this fantastic solution to facial recognition. And he dug around in his bag and he brought out this fake beak, like a bird's beak, 
but for a human that he'd made. Um, and he said, you know, I can pull every facial recognition system out there. And you know what? I did quite admire him for that. Um, but um, he did have to go around with a fake beak on. And, um, you know, it's not the most dignified thing. Um, but even if, you know, that was his choice, and I respect everyone's choice to wear a beak, um, there's still this, this problem of a technological arms race, which we'll, we, we'll always lose, right? Because, um, you know, for example, Apple and others have actually now been able to tweak their facial recognition algorithm so that they can recognise people when they're wearing a face mask, for example. Uh, and so, so the beaks the, won't win. Not always. No, <laughs> well, not forever. I thought we had the next um, digital that's, that's, rights that's watch campaign coming, Sam. I know you guys have um, campaigned on this. Is, it, is, is this a moment, though, do you think, to push the issue? Not just because of Kate's report and that it's in the mind, but it feels like it's, it, it's accelerating. Um, totally. Yeah, totally. And we, we've seen it, right? We've, we've seen overseas, in particular, some of the most, um, we, we've seen overseas some, some of the most dystopian examples of this, you know, in China and particularly in Xinjiang, where it's been, facial recognition has been used to enact the most brutal repression on particularly the weaker people, but, but even on a more kind of mundane level. Um, in, in the social credit schemes throughout um, the big Chinese cities. I mean, and, and that's horrifying. We don't want that. We don't want to go anywhere near that. Um, the public is crystal clear about that. So I think that, that what we need to confront is we've, at the moment, we've got the worst of all worlds with our law, right? So a few years ago, the former government introduced a bill called the Identity Matching Services Bill that was going to provide a kind of regulatory framework for facial recognition and other biometric tech. It was a pretty bad bill. Um, I was very, very kind of critical of it, as were others um, publicly. And in the end, um, the government said, well, we'll fix it. Um, that was years ago now, right? They didn't fix it. <laughs> they didn't introduce a new bill. And they just went ahead and did it anyway. Right. So not only do we, do we have kind of no dedicated facial recognition protections, um, but we've got this, this kind of technology, you know, really accelerating in its use. So, so I think now is the moment where we want to put some really clear guardrails to uh, prevent harm. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yes. I definitely think that it, there is a moment happening right now. And I, um, I know at Digital Rights Watch, we are, um, looking at how to how to leverage that more to get to get more of a public debate happening as well because I feel like a lot of these things are not getting as much attention as they deserve people should be able to critically engage with how we want these kinds of invasive technologies to play a part in our life um, I think Ed is really good at being very diplomatic about this which you know would come from your come the territory yeah. exactly um, I would say I take a bit more of a um, radical approach. I feel like for a lot of technologies, I would agree with with Ed that, you know, that there is, that we, we can put sort of like red lines around certain things. Facial recognition, though, to me, poses such a fundamental risk to our um, to our human rights and to the power imbalances between us and companies and us and governments that I would prefer, if I had my way, I would prefer to... For almost all cases, it's just it, we start with no, and then you need to prove to us how you can do this in a way that isn't going to uh, undermine our privacy completely or isn't going to exacerbate racial inequalities in a way that isn't going to give law enforcement the ability to disproportionately target people of color and indigenous peoples. And, you know, like I, I would want to see 
the starting point being no and then uh, and uh, for us to go from there rather than um, the other way around. That's that's personally where I would like to see yeah. it go. Arla, do you want to weigh in? Um, I know your organisation's social policy group works a lot around system change. Like, What are the systems that we're looking at here that, are, that need to be addressed? So there is the systems and we should get to that, but I also think there's the systems that weigh in in favour of creep towards increasing use of these technologies in a way which eventually gets us to a bad place. Um, and, and obviously, Ed, raise the social credit system in China, you know, where its facial recognition is being used in some parts of um, and, and some jurisdictions and cities in China so that, you know, if you happen to jaywalk, you know, it will identify you through facial recognition and automatically find you. Um, so, you know, you're kind of getting into territory that is, you know, really quite dystopian and scary. But I think you kind of have to identify what it is that is the offering um, that allows these sorts of technologies to creep into places like Kmart and Woolworths and Bunnings and other other kind of places like that. And I think, you know, one of the arguments is going to be, and this is the bit we've got to unpick, is that it's going to be around ease and efficiency. Um, and that's a very difficult proposition to come up against because, you know, where we'll move towards with some of the sort of major supermarket chains is, you know, well, you know, it'll be fantastic. You can just go and get the products off the shelf and we can identify the products and identify your face and charge you back to your phone or, you know, something along those lines and, you know, there'll be no wait times and no queues. Um, and I think, you know, ease and efficiency is how technology is managed to get to a place where it is highly intrusive. Um, and where some of those harms are really starting to, to impact and come in. And I think, you know, we need to unpick that notion of ease and efficiency versus, you know, that whole of systems approach about what sort of protections do we need. If only we had a human rights commissioner who decided to go to a major university to set up a body to do something like that, Carla. Ed, do you want to talk about what you're doing now? Yeah, well, so we're, we're doing some... <laughs> really big work on responsible tech and um, some of it uh, with with Peter and, and your colleagues. One of the projects we're doing is on facial recognition. I've just put into the chat a piece um, from the BBC that just came out um, today. Um, it actually has the date of 28th of June, which means the BBC News is giving us in the future. Um, but, but, but really looking at this, this problem of, uh, of the absence of law. Um, and the work that we were doing with, with Peter, um, an amazing researcher from Melbourne called Niels Walters as well, is, is saying, well, hold on. Um, most people experience facial recognition by maybe unlocking their phone. Um, they may be experiencing it in other ways, but just don't know about it. What difference would it make if we kind of opened the hood, um, help people to kind of experience a little bit more how the technology works itself, um, and then ask them just really openly, um, how does this make you feel? Um, what of this stuff are you okay with? What of this stuff um, do you think really needs stronger regulation? And um, we're not publishing for a few months yet, but just to kind of give a sneak peak, uh, the, the responses were super interesting. Right? Yeah. So um, there was, you know, on some issues, there was a higher level of enthusiasm for the technology than I'd anticipated and certainly higher than I feel. Um, but on, on a lot, people were saying, you know what, this technology is um, it's not safe to use without stronger regulation. And, and, and the sorts of things people were saying is we want to have some control about, about how this technology is used 
on us. You know, we're not the active subjects here. Mm. Um, we're, we're the objects, we're the things, we're the people that, that the technology is, you know, and we, we really want to be able to exercise some autonomy, autonomy and, and be confident that our basic rights are protected. And the project we worked on together, just to share a little bit with you guys, obviously in the cone of silence that is a public podcast. Um, so there's a great tool called Biometric Mirror. I don't know if it's available, for if we can link it, Ed, but people basically take a photo of themselves and then it runs a simulation on your ratings on everything from your attractiveness to your age to um, whether you're boring and then it posits different scenarios. And what I thought was really interesting, like it's quite dystopian that they're going to pick your your moods, but also your qualities based on the facial recognition technology. And then we put them in various scenarios, like getting access to a nightclub or blah, blah. But what really struck me at the end of it was most of the people wanted to win the facial recognition technology. They're going, what I need to do is just change my face so that I get through the door. So it wasn't even looking more broadly at, oh, my God, this is dystopian um, technology. It was just, how do I win? Um, and I only say that because, again, I think it goes back to why Kate's research is really important because it is showing real-life scenarios where this is going to be used and it raises, and I was surprised actually at all the box pops because, you know, the journos would talk to Ed or me and then go and talk to 10 people in the street and they were all saying, nah, I don't want to do this, don't want to shop here. So it maybe um, the, the broader public is a little bit more um, sceptical than our sort of select focus groups, Ed. Yeah, that's right. And it is it is really interesting, like just on a human level, the impact this technology has on you. So one of the things that it, it assesses is how responsible you are and you're basically not allowed to get onto this sort of pretend train um, unless you've got a minimum um, level of aggressiveness. Now, the, the science behind that is completely junk. It doesn't work. But you get this reading that says your, your, your face is assessed as being aggressive. And even though I know the technology doesn't work, I know there's no real train out there. I found myself kind of looking closer and closer at the camera and kind of, you know, smiling to the point that it wasn't a smile at all. It was this horrible grimace. And then you were um, you really know, aggressive. Yeah, exactly. It got worse and worse and worse. Um, and, you know, I was kind of jumping up and down saying, the technology doesn't work, which, yeah, I, I guess I was ending up being a little bit aggressive. Um, and so, you know, it, it, but, but anyway, the, the point is, that this technology can kind of create this um, this this kind of I don't know this 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 closed loop um, where it has its own logic, um, and even if the logic doesn't work, if that is the thing that is kind of um, determining whether or not you can access something that is quite important to you, like getting on a train or something even more profound than that, then you have no choice but to engage with it on its own terms. Um, and that, I think, is super dangerous. Kate's just put in the chat that she got a pretty negative response in her quant. We were picking up much worse in the quant than the qual, actually, as well, which was interesting, Kate. But just to round out um, your contribution, Dave, what are you guys moving on to next? What can we look forward to? And, um, yeah, let us know next time and we'll lean in heavily. Uh, yeah, I think um, we were all taken aback about how big the response to this one was. We've certainly <laughs> been getting many, many, many emails, probably not as many as Bunnings and Kmart's customer service is getting. Um, but we are looking at 
at um, ramping up our response to the retailers' use. We've written letters to Kmart, Bunnings and the Good Guys suggesting that they want to maybe stop doing this. Um, and then we'll also be following up with the other 22 retailers to ask if they would like to make a public statement that they have no intention of introducing facial recognition technology. Um, we'll be working with Digital Rights Watch on that and some of the other awesome uh, privacy advocates like um, EFA and um, APF as well. Anyone else who wants to get on board, uh, please do. <laughs> the, the more pressure, the better, I think. Um, uh, we have just submitted our complaint to OAC uh, this morning. We'll be following up with them. And I know that they've received multiple complaints on this specific issue. But then on the horizon for choice, next things we've got uh, looking, up, uh, looking at rental apps um, and the way that renters are forced to share their data may be well beyond what they want to. Um, in order just to get a place to live and then what happens to that data and how decisions are made about the suitability of yeah. our tenants. There's um, some really interesting stuff there. That one of the robo-polling companies was bought by a credit rating agency and that whole thing just yeah, yeah blows There's my some mind. really dodgy stuff going on in that industry, people paying for... Um, you know, a report from a tenancy database that the actual service already has a subscription to. There's no reason for that people mm. would need to pay for that with the business that already has access to that data. So there's there's a lot of monetization happening there yeah. uh, that shouldn't be. And then we're also going to be looking at algorithmic pricing, discrimination in insurance. That's a big project that we're scoping uh, coming awesome. up. So lots of things on the, the horizon. Excellent. Well, stay in touch and thanks for joining us today. Before we finish off, anyone got anything for the diary for the, the fortnight ahead? Um, what are you guys up to, Sam, at Digital Rights Watch? Yeah, so just to reiterate, the, we're running a campaign at the moment about the Border Force um, warrantless device searches. Please do head to privacyattheborder.com and sign the petition so that we can leverage that to push the new government to make some vital changes in that space. We are also running a June appeal. Um, we have these amazing stickers at the moment that are designed by a Melbourne, a local Melbourne artist. They feature the magpie, which is a callback to um, some reporting earlier, I think it was last year, where these magpies teamed up to help um, take each other's tracking devices off. And I just think that's such a beautiful symbol of like teamwork and anti-surveillance. <laughs> um, so please do, um, if you uh, um, haven't already, please consider supporting Digital Rights Watch. It really helps Yeah, I signed out. up last night. So, yeah. Amazing. <laughs> we'll put it in the chat as well. Carla, anything with um, Centre for Digital Wellbeing that we should be looking out for? Yeah, we've got a um, research piece coming up on the far right. And as part of that, we explore meme-based culture um, and the pathways through from online into um, real-world far right activities. Awesome. Can't wait to... See what comes out the other end of that. And Dan, what's going on Guardian wise? Uh, look, it's all just, just, just <laughs> tracking Guardian your readers, really, getting so. some money out of them. <laughs> uh, no, nothing new to report other than um, uh, you know we've 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 completed our hiring of uh, I think the fifty the fifty journals or so that I've spoken about on this uh, on this forum before. Um, it's all just now just trying to get over the election and uh, get on with uh, reporting on the new government. So um, I would just encourage everyone to keep reading the Guardian and support us if you don't already. As we all do. And um, my, um, my big exciting one is next week, the New South Wales um, Parliament's having an inquiry into the future of, the, future of work and they've dedicated an entire day to workplace surveillance and what we can do about that. So we're going to be throwing a few ideas on the table based around some of the existing laws that have sort of not been looked at or updated for the last 15 years. Who would have thought? Hey, we're almost at the hour. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thanks for being our guest, Ed. We'll keep an eye on your work. and. Um, but yeah, great discussion today. And this, so thanks for joining us, everyone. 
You've been listening to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. It was recorded live at a virtual town hall on June 24. If you'd like to attend one of these discussions in real life, you can register at centreforresponsibletechnology.org.au. Burning Platforms is produced on Gadigal land by Jennifer Macy. Talk again in a fortnight. <laughs>